went to Max on the way uh, to class, and he said how much he liked the songs of experience. So, how come? Very good. All right. Uh, so, for Monday... <laughs> go on. Say more. Um, yeah, they're just... It's, like, so much fun to have the innocent songs to contrast them with. And then... So, what contrast were you noticing? You um, or anyone. Other people can jump in if they want. Yeah, there's like some direct poems that are obviously referencing other ones. And we talked about the tiger already, but um, the chimney sweeper has another version. Mm-hmm. That one's really good. Um, Holy Thursday is Holy another Thursday, one. Another answer. There's a song we read. Um, yeah, it's just like wondering why he chose to put some of them in the experience. Yeah, and there are a couple, if you've read the footnotes, I think they point this out. Um, I actually got the same edition. They were originally in Innocence and then came to experience, um, which is um, uh, an interesting comment on Innocence, that um, there are borderline cases where it partly depends, you could say, on... um, what we were calling the narrative last week, or the kind of fictional reader, um, that is, um, the reader you would imagine reading these. Um, not quite the same thing as a narrative, but it's um, um, the reader over whose shoulder you would read these things. So, um, in you know that experience, right? You really like something. I mean, you have that experience when you play music for people, but it's an interesting experience when you've read something um, and then you give it to someone else to read and you watch them read it. And what's not quite the same thing as listening to a song that you really like. I mean, it's similar to the experience of really liking a song and then saying you got to listen to this, is that while you watch them read it, they're reading it silently. So um, if you read it over their shoulder or imagine it, imagine yourself being over their shoulder as you read it, um, you're um, not quite in sync with them or the way you're not quite in sync with them becomes um, clearer. And so it might be that the reader over whose shoulder you would imagine reading some of these songs as a song of innocence, that would be a reader who would find it really sweet or hopeful or optimistic, and then the reader over whose shoulder you would be reading it as the same poem as a song of experience would be one who would see the irony or the sad untruth of the innocent um, attitude that the poem is both um, describing and also mourning. Um, That might be a good word for it. And um, so it's a slightly different, whether it's a song of innocence or a song of experience, gives gives a slightly different um, sense of not the kind of, it gives a slightly different framing. It's not that the thing framed is different. It's what is framing it is different. And that leads, that that can lead to um, interesting complications or interesting um, adding interesting, uh, interesting 3D quality to it. Um, so that's, I think that's a neat thing about it as well. Um, for the word experience, I didn't have you guys read this, but I think we should just look at it now for a minute. 
Um, I didn't have you read it partly because if you read it, you might have um, either spent not enough time or too much time on it. Um, but right before the Songs of Innocence and of Experience, there are two little prose tracts that Blake wrote, um, one called All Religions Are One, and the, the second one called There Is No Natural Religion. Um, and the, um, the one called There Is No Natural Religion, uh, he has two, two different versions of. So they're always, um, it's always printed in any co collection of Blake um, as three different pieces, um, because one is in two different versions that are sufficiently unlike each other that uh, you need both. Um, so let's just quickly look. We'll do this quickly, and we won't um, spend time trying to figure out everything that's going on in it. I think what we'll do then is turn turn um, for a little while to the experienced version of the chimney sweeper, since we spent so much time on the innocent version of it on Monday. But um, if you have the um, Norton Blake, it's page five. Um, if you have a computer, it's called All Religions Are One. Um, and um, it begins with an argument. What does the word argument mean there? The same as in Paradise Lost? Summary, yeah. It's the um, 17th and 18th century version of TL semicolon DR. Um, that is, this is the, um, too long didn't read. Uh, Are you not a college student? <laughs> yeah, I am. Okay. Um, <laughs> and um, um, essentially, it's, it's, not, it's not really too long didn't read. It's, it's what you should be looking for. Um, in what you do read. So the argument is, as the true method of knowledge is experiment, um, that is testing how the world works. It doesn't mean scientific experiment, though it can, but that's a special case of experiment. But it's also what babies do in cribs, is they experiment with stuff. Um, they they um, knock at the crib to see whether maybe it will open. That's an experiment. Um, they drop uh, they they drop very expensive glass objects onto hard floors to see whether they will bounce or what the difference between glass and plastic is. So that's how you learn about the world. So um, as the true method of knowledge is experiment, who's he going against by saying that? The people who think that knowledge is, is something you can reason out, you know, without. Yeah, and in particular Plato. That is, so um, Plato has this view, which is, um, it's going to come up when we do Wordsworth as well. That, you know, the only truth is, is things that can be deduced from other truths. Okay, so that's, that's um, rationality, that if you have a truth, you can then use logic and argument to do other truths. But where do you get the original truths from? the ones from which you deduce others. So the Plato's view is that we are born knowing certain things. And um, this is actually certainly true. Um, however, Plato believed that the reason we're no that we're born knowing certain things is that we were alive in an ideal world. Ourselves preexisted our birth and that we were in an ideal world where we knew the truth because that's where we were. We, so we're born 
knowing actual truths. And then when we come into this world, we are afflicted with near total amnesia when we come to this world. And um, we have some memories of the truth, but memories that it is hard to access. And that what teaching and learning in, in this world is, um, a lot of it is um, um, methods for accessing truths that we know. So has anyone read a Platonic Dialogue? Um, do you remember which one you read? Yeah, it was Phaedo. Uh, well, no, Phaedo says that. Uh, I mean, it, it's... it's uh, um, in Phaedo, for example, he says... If you only know stuff from this world and you see two people, one person is a head taller than the other, um, then he says, Socrates, who's the, who's the character in Plato's dialogue, says, when I was a kid, I would actually go um, nuts trying to figure out what that meant. Because if one was a head taller than the other, that meant that each differed from the other by a head. Um, because one, you know, let's just say one's, we would now say one's a foot taller than the other, um, another bodily part. So if one's a foot taller than the other, each differs from the other by a foot. So each is like the other in differing from the other by a foot. So if A is a foot different from B, and B is a foot different from A, then it seems like A and B are exactly the same because they're mirror images of each other, because each, with respect to the other, is a foot different. And so it's, to use the phrase, the same difference. And I couldn't figure out what difference meant or what it would mean for things to be different when being different seemed to make them the same. And eventually I realized that, no, I had a concept that I was born with, although I didn't recognize it, of absolute greatness, that is, absolute size. And I had another concept of um, absolute zero, no size at all. And then what I realized was the taller person was slightly towards the higher end of a scale that was already defined by absolute size versus zero. So when you guys learn number lines, you're actually learning a platonic idea, that there's zero, and then there's infinity, all the way to the right, the way we do the number lines, and we can only fill in one, two, three, four, five, etc. if we already have, can orient ourselves with respect to zero, which we've never seen in real life. There's no such thing as zero. And infinity, which we've never seen in real life. Um, and yet, somehow, in order to understand what one and two and three are, we have to already understand what zero and infinity are. Now, if you ask most three-year-olds, do you know what zero and infinity are, they won't. Um, nevertheless, they can count. They know they're three, and next year they'll be four. So they do have some ability to count, and what Plato says is they do because in their minds, although they can't access it consciously, they have the concept of zero and they have the concept of infinity, or Plato would say, of absolute magnitude. Yeah? Um, I think like the actual near total amnesia when we are brought into this life makes me think of 
been over to the Spanish Road. Yes. Because that's how it starts. Like, they start in there, in this heaven, like, place. Right, exactly. He's born. Yeah, and forgets it all. Yeah. Yeah, and you'll see that happen in Wordsworth. Um, what the, this is something that Wordsworth takes as a model for telling the story he's going to tell the intimations out. Okay, so Plato's view then is that you're born with knowledge and that um, we have almost total amnesia, but it's not that the knowledge isn't there, it's that it's almost totally veiled from our conscious minds. And um, the great and that we can use then, we can use reason and logic to work our way back to um, this thing that we know but have forgotten, this thing that exists but in a forgotten state. Um, Darwin, in um, the mid-19th century, um, when he was working on the origin of species, um, went to the London Zoo, and he was looking at the chimps there, and then suddenly, and he wrote this in some secrecy because he was afraid that it was blasphemous, um, he wrote in his notebook, and you can find this, platonic recollection correct, so this is Darwin saying this, only for <coughs> pre-existence read monkeys. So his idea is that, um, is what we would now call um, uh, a, a learning via neural net, that is, if you know how um, they work, well, you don't, um, because no one knows how they work. But what happens is you have uh, machine learning. Machines learn things, um, and we don't know how they learn things, but then they beat us at chess, and they beat us at Go. And um, it's because they um, have done something really, really complicated, which evolved into a skill that they then have. And um, that idea of evolution is what Darwin is talking about, that, um, that over the course of um, millions of years, um, different organisms evolved relationships to the world around them that then became part of their biological heritage. Darwin didn't know the word gene, but becomes part of their genetic heritage. Um, and so it gets passed on. And so if a monkey knows that a banana is good and that a blue toad is bad, um, a monkey will be born knowing that because it will be in its genes. And no monkey will say no to a banana and no monkey will say yes to a blue toad. Um, and so, they, so um, organisms are born with pre-existent knowledge, and for some of them, they nevertheless have to be reminded of it. So we're born knowing stuff that we can't access, for example, till puberty, um, and most famously stuff that we can't access till puberty. Um, and so that, for Darwin, is what makes Plato right. Now, contrary to that in the history of philosophy is the Lockean view, which Blake actually hated. And part of what he's doing here is going against both Plato and Locke. But the Lockean view is the famous blank slate view. So did everyone know that term blank slate as a, um, not just as what's on the board, um, but as a phrase that people use? So what that means is you're born knowing nothing. And everything that we know, we know through experience and through learning. Um, that's not Blake's 
view of experience, but it is related to Blake's view of experience. So for Locke, if you know not to eat a blue toad, it's because either you ate one and you got really sick, or you saw someone else eat one and you saw them die, or you reached out for a blue toad and an adult slapped your hand away and said, don't eat that blue toad, it will kill you. Um, so we know not to eat blue toads, not because there's some internal knowledge that we're born with, but because we learned it from experience. Um, this comes out in the proverb, burnt child shuns fire. That is, um, the reason you're careful about stuff on a hot stove and the reason you don't reach into fire is that everyone does at some point in their lives. They touch something hot, which they shouldn't have, um, or they think a candle flame looks interesting, and then they get burnt, and then after that they have a reflex never to do it again. Um, so a, the platonic view would be you see fire and you simply won't touch it. You'll be afraid of it from the start. And the Lockean view is if you see fire, you will touch it until you learn from experience not to, or till you're taught not to. Yeah. Both of them are kind of like neural nets operating. Right? Yes. Because like basically one of the Locke's views, like our mind is working as our neural net, but then... Like Plato's view is almost like evolution working as a neural net by killing right. off all the monkeys that would have eaten the Well, blue. Darwin's view, not Plato's view. Sorry, yeah, Darwin's view would be evolution working as a neural net right. by killing off all the monkeys that eat the blue. Right. So maybe what we, we could stage this as Darwin versus Blake because what Darwin is doing in a way is he's reconciling Plato with Locke by saying that neural nets take care of the pre-existent part, or evolution takes care of the idea that neural nets can be passed down from one generation to the next. Um, and so that idea that you can be born um, knowing things um, is from Plato, but the way you get, the way you're born knowing things is that your inheritance or your heritage or your ancestors learned them the way Locke did. Um, so species learn things in a Lockean manner, but they pass them down to individuals in a platonic manner. Does that make sense to everyone? I know this is not what you signed up for, but it's... Um, uh, what? Also, the idea—the idea of like during puberty, like being able to like reconnect with something that we already knew—is also interesting because it's like, like there's so many genes that are turned off and then get turned on during puberty, like genes that turn blonde hair brown and things like that. I think that's not the one most people think about, but yeah. yeah. I mean, and then like obviously all the genes that make your hormones and stuff, but it's like. yeah, so I guess like if there's some genes that make us know things, yeah, and those get turned on when you go through adolescence, it's kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. So Blake is the opposite of that, which is to say that he wants to say that in some real sense both Plato and Locke are wrong. So if Doran wants to say that in some real sense they're both right. Um, Blake wants to say Plato is wrong to think that experience um, doesn't matter or that experience is trivial. And Locke is wrong to think that um, everything that we know 
we know as a kind of passive accumulator, the passive accumulators of what the world is projecting onto us. So it's like a spectrum. It's not like either extreme. Well, they're both in the middle, or they're both um, a dialectical combination would be a better way to say it. So um, the way dialectical combination works is two things that seem opposed to each other turn out on a deeper level to be very similar to each other. Um, you, it, it's, this is, uh, there's a kind of feed, well, no, it's, it's not worth trying to explain dialectic here, but um, you can see it if you look at etymologies of words is one place um, that uh, you get di that dialectic thinking becomes obvious. So that, for example, the word, um, for um, the word that for us it's the word gift, as in present, as in something um, good, a happy thing to get. In German, it's poison. The same word, same root, for um, something good and something poisonous, they come from the same root. Um, so why should that be? Um, it's worth thinking about. Um, why should the word, maybe this is a much easier one, why should the word guest and host, which seem to be and to, they seem to be opposed to each other. Uh, they came from. They come from the same root. Um, guest and host both come from the same root. In French, they're actually the same. They're word. in French. They're the same. And that's like Camus has a book called Lot, which right. means like the guest, but it also means the host, the host, and you don't know what it's talking about. Right. Exactly. Um, so that that idea is that that with dialectical thinking you can see why things that look like they're opposed to each other actually depend on each other and are entangled with each other and um, belong together rather than um, separate yeah which is exactly what we said innocence and experience exactly innocence and experience which is like innocence and experience they are dialectical opposites um, which is to say they're connected to each other um, Hegel's famous example to illustrate this, um, because he's the great uh, philosopher of the dialectic, is the master and the slave. Um, so the idea is, what could be more different than the person who has complete power and the person who is completely subjugated to the powerful person? But what happens is the master, the more power a master has, the more he, and it's very much he and Hegel, um, uh, has the slave do everything that he, the master, needs. Um, so the slave cooks, the slave cleans, the slave eventually bathes the master. Um, the slave does everything, and the master does nothing, because if the master has to do anything for himself, he's that much less a master. Um, so the absolute master um, has the absolute slave do everything for him. But that means that the master is completely and utterly reliant on the slave and therefore becomes a slave to the slave who is um, the person who has every kind of power that there is because it's the slave who can act and the master who cannot. And even if you would still rather be the master in that situation than the slave, it's also the case that um, the master can only be a master um, if he has a slave to um, define his mastery. So without slaves, no master. So, so many like so many monarchies and things like that also fall because like the person, the people who are below the person, like below the king or whoever, 
know so much more than him because they're required to know more and like, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But also psychologically, one place that this comes out, and Marx takes Hegel, um, uh, this is all relevant to Blake. Um, it actually is, because Blake thinks this way also. Um, but Marx takes Hegel and applies it to political economy, and the Marxist idea, one version of the uh, Marxist idea, is um, you can see it most vividly in, in miserliness, is that misers become a slave to money. So money is supposed to be um, the thing completely controlled by the rich person, but the opposite happens. The money ends up controlling the rich person instead of the rich person controlling the money. Everything the rich person does is at the behest or the demand of what his money needs. And, um, you know, just think of people who have a lot of money and won't spend a cent because it would violate the purity of all the money they have. You know, think if you have $1,000 in the bank. If you have $1,003, it's okay to spend those $3. But if you have, like, exactly $1,000, it's really, really painful <laughs> to break that round number. So here's this thing that's supposed to give you power, but instead it has power over you as an abstraction. Um, so Marx talks about what he calls commodity fetishism, which is... Um, when instead of using commodities, which is literally what a commodity is, is something you can use, um, something that, that um, is helpful or useful to you. A commodity means something helpful. Um, instead of using commodities, um, what we do is we try to increase their price and trade them for other commodities of high value. So for Marx, it's not that commodities represent us on the market, but we end up representing commodities. And commodities are treating us as puppets. Um, and that's Marx's version of Hegel's master-slave dialectic. But so that's so brief introduction to what dialectic is. Um, the um, idea in um, Darwin is that there is a dialectic between Locke and Plato, even though they seem so opposed to each other. And the dialectic is the species learns in a Lockean way, or the genus, or the phylum, how, at whatever level you want to put it, learns in a Lockean way. Um, but the individual recollects and inherits the species learning in a platonic way. And Blake is saying the opposite, as we'll see, which is that the um, everything we know, we know as individuals, not as something that we've inherited from some um, larger domain in which we are unimportant. We are not just the representatives of some um, kingdom of heaven or platonic heaven or God or the angels. We are all important as single individual beings. Um, so not platonic, but not Lockean because Locke for, for um, Blake is like Plato in saying that what Plato is saying is we individuals are very small compared to 
um, what goes on in Platonic Heaven, where there is truth and beauty, um, which are possibilities for what the form of forms are, is in Plato. Um, and then there are individual souls that are exposed to this truth and beauty. In Locke, they're just individual little minds that are exposed to the giant world out there and learn little bits of it. And for Blake, those are wrong in similar ways. Plato, Locke thought he was saying the opposite thing from what Plato was saying, and Blake is um, essentially saying, no, they're saying the same thing, which is that what's outside of you matters much more than what's inside of you. Whether what's outside of you is in the world of pre-existence for Plato, or whether what's outside of you is in the empirical world um, for Locke. Um, so the empirical world means the world that you come to learn about through your senses. Um, and for Blake, no, it's all in the individual human soul. And that's the crucial thing to understand. So he's going to, don't take any attack that he makes on Plato as agreeing with Locke, and don't take any attack he makes on Locke or Newton or Voltaire, who are the people he will attack, as making him agree with Plato. Um, he is attacking each, but for the same reason. So they seem, so, so it looks like they're opposites to each other, but they aren't, um, in Blake's point of view. And that's the best way to understand what Blake's point of view is, is that he is seeing the similarities between Locke and Plato rather than what everyone else imagined were the irreconcilable differences between Locke and Plato. So, back to um, All Religions Are One. So the argument is, as the true, and that's just a great title, All Religions Are One. As the true method of knowledge is experiment, because of that, the true faculty of knowing must be the faculty which experiences this faculty I treat of. So, what word leaps out to you there? Faculty. <laughs> uh, maybe if you're a faculty member. <laughs> but it's being said so many times, and it's yeah. such a... I don't actually know what it means here. Um, it means... Yeah. I think because like in French, faculty means university, or in school. It, yeah, it means... Um, um, it means a mental capacity or psychological capacity, experimental psychological, cognitive capacity to do something. So, like, from here, well, with the French sense, I was, like, reading as the true method of knowledge is experiment, the true school of knowing. No, it doesn't mean school. <laughs> it doesn't mean school. No, no. no. It means body part in the sense. Body. Yeah. No, as in, like, but the sense of so like, the body's a school. Yeah, but that, he really doesn't mean it. As, I don't think faculty actually meant that in English at the time. Uh, like the faculty at a school, I don't think they used that word um, in the 18th century. I could be wrong. I'll look it up later. Um, but faculty means, if you've lost your faculties, it means, it, it, if you look it up in Shakespeare, it means the faculty of seeing or hearing. It's what the, it's what the brain can do or what the mind can do. So if you lose your faculties, you lose your, your power of seeing and hearing and tasting and touching and so on. And so faculties are the possessions and the competencies and the abilities of the mind to um, do things in the world. So 
the true faculty of knowing, that is the part of the mind which knows, must be the faculty which experiences, the part of the mind which experiences. And so experiences leapt out for you as the word, Max, because of the songs of experience. Oh, right? that makes sense. <laughs> um, but faculty, but you're right to focus on faculty also, um, because he's not saying um, that um, true knowledge is experience. He's saying the true faculty of knowing must be the faculty which experiences. So we want to know what that faculty is. What faculty knows because it experiences. So for Locke, that would be the blank slate. But the blank slate isn't a faculty, it's nothing. It's just an empty container into which things are poured. But if, the, if there is a true faculty which knows, that has to be the faculty which experiences. And Blake wants to know what that faculty is. Innocence? No. <laughs> In, um, it's, it, um, it begins innocent. Okay, yeah, that, yeah, okay. And, and that would be the point, is that there is something, namely innocence, which is how it begins, um, but then it comes to experience. Because if we use Locke's model, then children just, like, don't feel anything at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they do feel something. Yeah. Locke's model led doctors who believed him in the 19th century, even in the 20th century, to think that infants didn't feel pain. Um, it's a ridiculous idea, um, but it was believed Why did they think they're crying all the time? <laughs> because it was good for their lungs. Wait, really? Yeah, no, no, it's bizarre. I mean, I, do, I actually don't understand this, and I keep thinking that this must be some kind of academic myth. Um, but it does seem to be the case that doctors were taught in medical school until not too, not that long ago that infants didn't feel pain. Infants didn't get nearly the kind of pain relief that older people got when they were submitted to painful procedures. Thank God that they can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I mean, Sorry? They can't remember, and that's going to be part of the reason they thought they could feel pain, because they didn't remember it later. In their right. Life. Yeah. It's also one theory of anesthesia, is that you do feel pain when you're under anesthesia. You just have no memory of it, whatever. You don't even remember it from one instant to the next. So is memory pain? A lot. Pain is certainly seems to be memory. Um, yeah, because it's like a reflex. It's like, no. It's like yeah. your body saying, no, remember? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Little kids learn gymnastics so much more easily than adults. Because they feel no pain. pain. Yeah. 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 Whereas we're glue, right? So it's really interesting how it's like kids may actually have a lot to teach us than we have to teach them. Yeah. Because it's like they are boundless and they're not afraid as we are. Yeah. Well, Blake would certainly think that. Oh. Why didn't he just say that? Why didn't he have to write these poems? Oh, we love these poems. (laughs) 
We love them. We love them, but the whole world understands. <laughs> <laughs> well, so anyhow, so to go on, I'm going to treat of that faculty. So it's not a blank slate, which doesn't need treatment. Um, so the first principle, that the poetic genius is the true man and that the body or outward form of man is derived from the poetic genius. Likewise, that the forms of all things are derived from their genius, which by the ancients was called an angel and spirit and demon. So the idea would be what you really are is that part of you, of your soul, which is absolutely creative and absolutely res responsive to creation. So genius there doesn't mean Einstein genius. It means um, a spirit from which things are born. So it means the deepest and most powerful and most spiritual part of you. Doesn't mean someone who can figure out five-digit prime numbers really fast. It's almost the opposite of knowledge in a way. I yeah, think. yeah. But it's nevertheless the genius which knows. So notice that he says it's the ancients called that genius an angel and spirit and demon. So anyone know what young adult novelist picks up this use of the word demon? Although he spells it Pullman. Philip Pullman. Yeah. So Philip Pullman's demons in his dark materials um, are partly coming from Blake. Yeah, he actually pronounces it demon. Um, Pullman himself. Wait, say it again? In the movie, they say demon. Every awful, time they say it, I'm like, you're movie. wrong. <laughs> yeah, except that's how Pullman pronounces it. Yeah. I think he's wrong. Um, yeah, it's spelled D-A-E-M-O-N. Um, but that's so that you won't think that it's a demon like a devil. Um, so the word demon meaning devil, like you demon you, um, is a New Testament explanation of what in um, Plato was simply a name for spirit. Um, demon, the etymology of the word demon is a Greek word meaning desire, um, the thing desired or the faculty of desiring. Um, so Blake isn't using it to mean devil. Um, Pullman spells it with an A so that you don't confuse it from the get-go with, um, with uh, cruel creatures with pitchforks and tails and, and cloven hooves. Um, but um, Blake is one of the most important writers to Pullman, and this is the kind of thing that's important to him. So um, that's what belongs to us from um, in our deepest level. Second principle. As all men are alike in outward form, so, and with the same infinite variety, all are alike in the poetic genius. So all people are poets, is what he's saying. To be a human being is to have poetic genius, to have deep poetic genius. Third principle, no man can think, write, or speak from his heart, but he must intend truth. I think that's a great sentence. That is, that if you are speaking or thinking or writing from your heart, then you are intending something true. If it's not from the heart, then it's not intending truth. Um, but if it comes from the heart, then what you're intending is truth. And um, 
what he's giving you here is a definition of truth. He's not saying we know what truth is and look, isn't it cool that everyone who speaks from the heart intends the truth? What he's saying is we know what truth is because what truth is is what someone um, wants to be saying when they mean it. It's that thing which people really mean. Not when people are manipulating each other, not when people are saying, um, of course I won't cash your check till tomorrow, or of course I'll pay you back tomorrow when they won't. Um, it's when they mean it that that's where the very idea of truth comes from. It's, it's what's meant by what comes from the heart in a human being. What if someone said something really racist, but it came from their heart? Is that truth? It, no, they're intending truth if it comes from the heart. Um, no, it doesn't mean it's truth. Yeah. It's what they're aiming at. Yeah. So, um, of course, you get lots of horrible falsity coming from the heart. We have um, a president who almost everything he says comes from his heart, and it all contradicts everything else he says, and it can't possibly be true. Um, but the idea is that if you speak from the heart, you're, you mean to be saying what is true. I think also, like, drawing to like, the biblical tradition, uh, like, truth is often put in the same category as, like, love, mm -hmm. almost. And I like the use of, like, the heart, because, well, I would, like, after reading Blake and all these other people, I would infer that, like, then the faculty of love is the heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so truth and love go together. Yeah, so, like, in a way, truth is love. Yeah. Intending, intending truth. Yeah, is loving truth. Yeah. Um, yeah, nice. Amor <laughs> more wicked omnia, yeah. Is Blake, then... Suggesting that there isn't, like, an objective truth, that yeah. truth is only subjective. Well, he's saying that you could, you could um, put it that way, um, except then you would have to concede that maybe racism is truth. If truth is subjective, then someone who subjectively thinks it's true, what other truth could there be? But it would rather be, I think, something like love of truth is inevitably subjective because the only people capable of love are people. Um, so it's not, the very idea of truth means that it has to be that you're intending something objective. You have to be. Um, people who say, well, this is my truth, then they're not actually saying it's true, it's just saying this is, this is um, how I want to think about things. But um, if people passionately believe that they're speaking the truth, then they passionately believe they're speaking something that other people, if they understood, would agree with. And so um, there is object. You could say that there isn't truth or there's no value to truth outside of human um, uh if, human valuing. Um, so, uh, it, seems, it seems like creative would be a better term than subjective. Like all truth is creative, not subjective. Okay, 
Um, yeah, or all truth is human, but um, it's still true. Or, or there are things that can be true, and there are things that people can passionately believe that are not true. Um, but the passion of their belief is a passion for truth, um, even if what they believe is not true. And um, again, that's dialectical. You have to you have to allow for both pos- for both directions, but also see that there's a connection between them, which is what's intended from the heart. Yeah. I also think like the truth is good for everyone involved. Uh huh. And it's going to be subjective. Like for example, in wildlife, like in the wilderness, when the tiger eats like the deer, it's cruel. Like to somebody who isn't really like behind knowing what's going on behind the scenes, but it's good because that's how the whole environment is sustained, Mm -hmm. and that's how everyone is kind of fed, and it's like the life cycle. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think it is subjective, but like it has to be the good for the good of everyone. Okay. Yeah, and there's um. The intentional part of that isn't um, isn't literally in, in the cycle that you're describing, but if you were to say something like um, the wolf's intention to eat the lamb, um, that the wolf um, actually believes it's true, um, that's different from the wolf um, seeing a chance to take advantage and playing a dirty trick on the lamb. Yeah, it's um, just the nature of the wolf. That's what it does. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it knows nothing else but to eat the hair. Yeah, well, there's a concept um, in um, evolutionary game theory called predator-prey cooperation, and um, I think it's just um, such a beautiful idea that predator and prey cooperate with each other. Um, that um, that's if you see that as a beautiful idea and I might have to flesh out a little bit to to explain it but I won't Um, but if you see it as a beautiful idea um, then um, you know it's like those scenes in in movies or, or mystery novels or something where the detective and the arch villain finally come face to face and they have a conversation and each respects the other. Um, that kind of mutual respect would be something like a respect for the truth. Um, and um, there is a way that the hare and the wolf cooperate. Um, and that, that's a really interesting thing. Um, they help each other, um, intentionally help each other um, for some genuine meaning of intention. They intentionally help each other. Um, and that's a really interesting and unexpected um, thing. But maybe not unexpected by Blake. Um, I think he, w- he would have expected it. So, um, no man can think, write, or speak from his heart, but he must intend truth. Thus, all sects of philosophy are from the poetic genius, adapted to the weaknesses of every individual. So, all philosophy comes out of... Um, people trying to tell the truth. And so if 
Greek philosophy seems to differ from Sanskrit philosophy, seems to differ from Buddhist philosophy, seems to differ from African philosophy, seems to differ from American Indian philosophy, if all their religions seem to differ, if there's polytheism and monotheism and pantheism and so on, well, all religions are nevertheless one, as the title of the tract puts it, because they are all attempts to express the truth. And the truths, the way those truths are expressed is adapted to the weaknesses of every individual. So that um, some people hear Laurel and some people hear Yanni, um, but it's the same sound. The truth is the same. And for some people it has to be Yanni and for some people it has to be Laurel. Um, or another way of putting it is that when you learn a foreign language, it seems really weird to you, like that oh, should mean both host and guest in French. Um, but in French, there isn't a problem there at all. And so for um, English native speakers, there's a problem. Um, and so we get a different word adapted to our weaknesses as people who think in English, um, and the French get a different word adapted to their weaknesses as people who speak in French. Um, maybe a way, I'm, I'm just trying to think of simple examples of this, but for example, if you don't like um, quarter tone music, which many Westerners don't, so some claim they do, but mostly they don't, so if you don't like um, sitar music, for example, does anyone really like it? You do? Okay, I'm wrong. Um, does it sound exotic to you? I guess that's an admission you'd have to make as a Westerner. Yeah, so are you making that admission? I don't know. I'm not, it doesn't sound good to say it. It doesn't sound good to say it? <laughs> if it's true. I'm not sure it's true. Like if I don't want it to be true. <laughs> yeah, but you don't want it to be true, but it doesn't Maybe mean that familiar it's familiar is a better word. Familiar. Does it, okay, so what you might, what we know, I think we know, is that whatever, um, you know, just really um, catchy melody that might be an earworm for us. Um, so you might have an earworm, it's a catchy melody, um, and because it's catchy, you're caught. Um, then there's um, music, let's just say atonal, but I think it, it's, it helps just to think of it as coming from a culture you did not grow up in. So if you hear music from a culture you didn't grow up in, um, then that music will sound, compared to your culture, it'll be exotic. Um, and the culture you grew up in will be exotic to that culture that this music comes from. And so earworms in your culture, a catchy tune, in, um, let's say, a European culture um, is not going to sound catchy to someone who hasn't grown up in that culture and internalized um, that scale and those keys. Um, and for someone who has grown up in that culture, like me, um, if I hear sitar music, I can like it, but it's not catchy. But for someone who has grown up in that culture, 
it may very well be catchy. And they will therefore have the same attitude towards music that sounds to me like eerie and neat and suggestive. And for them, it'll sound like a pop tune. Um, and what sounds to me like a pop tune will for them sound eerie and neat and suggestive. Um, so that is probably, I'm, I'm exaggerating how true that would be, um, especially since pop tunes have invaded the world. Um, but um, that's certainly true in the history of music, that when um, non-Westerners first heard Western music, it sounded like noise to them. Um, it was like, how can you call this music? It's just bizarre, random sounds. And in the same way as when Westerners first heard non-Western music, um, they had the same response. And um, so that would be that adaptation, that we know and should know, and Blake is arguing, that deep down, whatever experience I have hearing a pop song and responding to it and, and liking it is an experience that I know someone else can have with a song that I couldn't possibly experience that way, but I know they have the same experience. So different notes are giving them that experience, a different sequence of notes, a different scale, a different um, a tonality is giving them that experience, and it's the equivalent of my experience, but I can't, I can't th what they hear can't give me the experience, even as what I hear can't give them the experience. So Blake is saying the same with philosophy, that if you're not appreciating um, um, Sanskrit philosophy, let's say, it's because um, you are tuned to a different philosophy. And if you want to know what people who are tuned to Sanskrit philosophy are experiencing, don't think that it's radically different from what you're experiencing by being tuned to your own philosophy. If you want to know what um, um, Buddhist religious um, exaltation feels like, then consider what your own religious exaltation feels like in your own religion assuming you have one, which Blake is here assuming. So Satanists and Christians are the same? Well, let's get to the marriage of heaven and hell because we might get to see that. But, um, yeah, I think a lot of people would say Satanists and Christians are the same. <laughs> it certainly may be what Milton would say, right? Okay, so onward. As none by traveling over known lands can find out the unknown, this is principle four, so from already acquired knowledge, man could not acquire more. Therefore, an universal poetic genius exists. So you um, can't know what you don't know without traveling, and then you can. And what you might do is you might meet other people who appreciate things that you don't. And therefore, there has to be something which is adaptable in all humans to whatever specific ways it manifests itself. 
Principle five, the religions of all nations are derived from each nation's different reception of the poetic genius, which is everywhere called the spirit of prophecy. So all religion comes from prophecy. There is no religion which is right and other religions are wrong. Wait, what does it mean that all religions come from prophecy? So he's now saying the poetic genius is called the spirit of prophecy. So that happens when you suddenly have, I mean, just to put it as simply as possible, you suddenly have a rush. You suddenly have understanding. You're reading a poem or hearing a song or seeing a piece of art or reading a religious text or being um, hearing a sermon or learning um, um, a doctrine, and suddenly um, you're awestruck by it. You know, you may play the electric guitar because you're awestruck by it, but you have this feeling of awe. That, for Blake, is the spirit of, pro of prophecy, um, the possibility of aesthetic awe or spiritual awe. And all people have that capacity, he says. Um, most religions believe that they alone offer awe, but what Blake is saying is that all religions and all art offers awe. All art offers awe. That's not so good with the different vowel sounds. Um, but that, that awe is um, a universal human capacity and a universal human experience. And for him, that awe is the poetic genius. It's not religious awe. It's, um, although it's not, um, he will, he's perfectly fine to call it religious awe, but it's the awe um, that comes from human capacity for the poetic genius. And that's where religion comes from. That's, or spiritual would be the good word for him. Um, so it's everywhere called the spirit of prophecy. And for Blake to be a poet and to be a prophet are the same thing. Um, in Futurity, if you just look at um, uh, sorry, um, let me just find it. The um, introduction um, to the Songs of Experience. Hear the voice of the bard who present, past, and future sees. And later, I won't find this now, the, the, the lines that begin, in futurity I prophetic see. So for Blake, to be a poet is to be a prophet, and to be a prophet is to be a poet. Sorry, what is a prophet again? A prophet is taken in its simplest terms as someone who can see the future and who is given that gift by God. Um, so that's what the religion, religious idea of, of yeah. prophecy is, is that God has allowed certain people to warn um, their fellows about what will happen, um, and they're given the gift of seeing the future. And, and so Blake you should listen using, to the prophets. And Blake is using that same meaning here? Well, for him, it's that all people are prophets if they could only listen to their poetic genius. Um, so, again, this is a strange dialectic because for... You know how sometimes the bumper stickers, anti-abortion bumper stickers, um, one anti-abortion line is a quote from a Bible, from the Bible, which is, before you were born, before you were in your mother's womb, I knew ye... Um, have you ever seen that one? Yeah. Um, and in fact, if you look it up contextually, it actually says the opposite. It means the 
it should have the opposite effect from the way it's used because I think it's Jeremiah. I forget where it's from now. But what it is is, in context, it's unlike all other human beings, you, I, as I say, I think it's Jeremiah, you, Je or it might be Hosea, anyhow, unlike all other human beings, you, Hosea, or you, Jeremiah, are special because I knew you while you were still in your mother's womb. I like Ecclesiastes, better to have died in the womb than ever before. Right, <laughs> there is that too. Yeah, I, I don't advise that as a bumper sticker, but... Um, you yes. think that would be a good pro-choice bumper sticker? It depends where you're driving, um, because now that you've been born, um, people might get up on your hood while you drove 70 miles an hour or something. Did you hear about that story? Oh, there was a fender bender on the Mass Pike, and... One guy, a 66-year-old guy, was trying to get the other guy to give his information, and he tried to drive away. So the 66-year-old guy jumped on his hood, and the guy tried to get him off his hood by driving 70 miles an hour with this guy clinging to his hood down the Mass Pike. Um, and um, eventually another guy <laughs> with a gun stopped this guy who was trying to get the guy off his hood, and said, get out of the car. And then some cops showed up. And um, so it could have been a mess, but it ended up. Mommy has to love that one. Oh, yeah, well, as, as I like to say, the only way to stop a bad Samaritan with a gun is for a good Samaritan with a gun to be around. Um, at any rate, this happened yesterday. Um, yeah. It's a mass, it happened the Mass Pike yesterday, and I thought of that great, um, was it Proposition 2 ad, which is, we're mass holes, but we ain't no assholes, um, the pro-transgender oh rights ad. Oh, my God. And I think these guys were assholes rather than mass holes. Oh, my goodness. I, I can't believe it. I can't believe the guy actually drove 70 miles per hour. I can't believe a civilian with a gun accosted the car and then told him to stop or I'll shoot. No, the car had stopped. Um, oh. There were other cars that were cutting it off and trying to stop him. Um, and then a civilian with a gun said, get out of the car. How can you feel like driving at 70 miles per hour with a guy? With the guy, I don't have the conscience I think to do he, that. I think he was pissed off. That's, my impression is he was pissed off. Wow. Kill <laughs> somebody. Yeah, maybe that's the goal. <laughs> I, think, I think he was making a point. I think what he wanted to do was make a point. And the point was, get the fuck off my hood. Um, also, you can't get off. If well, he, would then, he then slammed on the brakes, hoping the guy would go flying off. <gasps> Oh my god. Yeah, this is like the article that I have on that he was just boxed in my traffic like that's all the time he stopped. Yeah, this is crazy. So at any rate <laughs> um if you had such a bumper sticker, <laughs> you might have to worry in certain states in this great nation of ours. Um including Western Mass. Um, but the point is that uh, a prophet is, is generally biblically taken to be a special person who has a um, powerful, is a powerful representative of God. 
and part of that rep representation that the prophet will show um, is that they will have something like God's um, anger and distaste for human sinning. Um, so prophets are often, um, the famous line is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That is, the prophet is one who cries in the wilderness. No one listens to him. And um, the reason no one listens to the prophet is the prophet is telling um, human beings or telling fellow um, um, uh, country men um, that terrible things are going to happen to them because they're all sinners. And so prophets tend to, um, tend to be downers. And, um, but they're downers because they have this special relationship to God. And um, there are also false prophets who um, seem to show that they're prophets because they predict the future, because they raise the dead, and so on. But you have to be careful to distinguish between true and false prophets. So this is all a biblical idea. Um, Muhammad is a prophet in Islam. Um, he is the prophet in Islam and um, the last and greatest prophet of God, of Allah. Um, so these are people who speak for God um, or in Greek, in Greece, for, in Rome, for some of the gods. Tiresias is a prophet um, who speaks mainly for Apollo. Um, but it's, uh, these are people who have some divine powers. They are humans with some divine powers. So for Blake, it's all humans have divine powers. Hence the human form divine, which we looked at um, the first day of class. Um, or whenever it was that we looked at it. Um, the human form divine. For Blake, it's all humans are prophets. And he would agree with the bumper sticker, unlike its original context. Yeah. So it's in Song of Innocence, it's the divine form, and then in Songs of Experience, it goes to a divine form. Nice. As if, like, there's a multi, like, as you experience world, you realize there's more than one way. Right. Perfect. Beautiful. Beautiful. Also, like, I guess we're, we're then all crying in our own wilderness because, like, there's basically an infinite number of religions out there. Like, if we're, we all believe our own religions in a yeah, way, and yeah, there's yeah. an infinite number of religions out right. there. Right. Yeah. Um, so, but the, but the crucial thing is to see that they are all expressions of the poetic genius, which is the thing that really matters. And the mistake is to think that your religion is right and other religions are wrong, when they are all expressions of the same divine spark within all human beings. It's just... Is it correct to think for Blake he has this like sense of prophecy and futurity as being um, what poetry is? Yes. Um, and so then in like the context of this class, it seems Woodsworth's sense of poetry is a precise opposite, that poetry is introspection, recollection, remembrance, yeah. elegy. I wouldn't call it precisely the opposite. Mm -hmm. I don't think Blake would call it precisely opposite, although there's a lot of Wordsworth he hated. Um, but there's some Wordsworth he loved. Um, we probably won't have time for this, but I'll just mention that Blake, um, as an artist, he, his marginalia are really interesting because he would draw rude pictures sometimes. 
and um, there's this really long, terrible poem by Wordsworth, which um, I once had graduate students in a graduate seminar read, um, but I would never inflict on undergrads, uh, called The Excursion. There are probably fewer than a thousand people in the U.S. who've read the whole thing. Um, and there's actually the, the semester that I was teaching at, John Burt was teaching his Melville class, and he had his students read Chlorel, and, um, which there are probably fewer than 100 people in the United States who've read the whole thing. And I also had them read a long poem by Shelley that maybe fewer than 1,000 people in the world have read or in the U.S. have read. At any rate, Blake was reading um, this poem by Wordsworth, and he hated it so much that on the top of one page... He drew a pair from behind just the buttocks of someone who is squatting, and down the page are turds falling out of his ass as um, it goes down the page next to what Wordsworth has written. Um, so that's when Blake was anti Wordsworth. But, um, sorry? If I used to draw in margins all the time. I think if I was still a person who drew in the margins of everything that I read, that might be something I would do. From time to time, yes. You would think that, that Zuckerberg would give it as an emoji. You could comment on people's posts, but he hasn't. It's just another antisocial thing he's done. Um, so, um, however, Blake thought some of Wordsworth was spectacularly great, and that would be the place where he thought Wordsworth was giving a version of what he was doing. At um, about a month before he died, um, Blake wrote a letter to a friend of his. It's so Blake. I wonder if it's in this. Um, it's got to be. Um, but the letter begins, Dear, I forget the guy's name, Taylor or something. Um, do I have my computer now? Anyhow, it begins something like, uh, dear Taylor, um, I am um, a very old man and have been uh, very sick and near the gates of death, but not in the real man, not in the imagination which liveth forever. So just imagine that you got a, got a letter like that. That's like it's not, you know, how are you? I've been hanging out. Oh, by the way, you know, I've been thinking to myself that I've been near the gates of death. Okay, yeah, read, oh, it is in there. Good, read it. I am very near the gates of death and have returned very weak and an old man, feeble and tottering, but not in spirit and life, not in the real man, the imagination which liveth forever. In that I am stronger and stronger as this foolish body decays. I thank you for the pains you've taken with your poor job. What am I supposed to get to? That's, that's fine, that's good. But yeah, so that's a pretty direct letter. So there he is at the age of 69. And what he's saying is the real man, the real person, is the imagination which liveth forever. So for him, the idea is that the poetic genius, so, and, you know, so this is written um, 40 years later, roughly. Um, and um, what he's saying, still saying 40 years later, is um, that what is really central to the human being, to being human, is not is is the prophetic quality of being a human, but not because, and this I think is actually more like Wordsworth than unlike Wordsworth, not because we can tell from our poetic spirits that we are actually um, children of God, but that 
because we are poetic, it's not that our poetic spirits are actually hidden prophetic powers, but that our prophetic powers are actually poetic powers. And that, therefore, it's not that God has given us these powers, it's that we create God out of these powers which are so deep within us. Um, so, um, the idea here in Blake is that the human genius, human power, human poetical spirit is the great thing in the world. Um, that all people are prophets, and because we're prophets, we create the Lord. Uh, we create God. We create um, these things which stand for what is actually innate within us. So just to finish this, since we um, have a minute left, um, principle six, the Jewish and Christian testaments are an original derivation from the poetic genius. So the Hebrew Bible and the Christian Bible come from the poetic genius. It's not that they're telling the truth. They're derived from the human soul and human mind and human spirit as a poetical soul and mind and spirit. This is necessary from the confined nature of bodily sensation. That might be hard, but I think what it means is we had to create something that transcended us because our bodies were too confined for the soaring nature of our minds. And finally, the seventh principle, all men are alike, though infinitely various, so all religions and all similars have one source. The true man is the source, he being the poetic genius. So that is um, where religion comes from, is the intention of truth in the human heart, in the poetic genius. It's not that religion is true, it's that uh, religion is created as an attempt to picture the truth that we always, when we intend something, what we always intend. So religions are pictures of the truth, but the truth is what comes out of the human heart. Okay, so we will turn to, as uh, we will finally turn to the experienced version of the chimney sweep, sweeper on um, Monday. So have a good weekend. Sorry? Did I go to the downstairs? I think so, yeah. And 